Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, now part of Netrix, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Last week, some in the community noticed a new interesting icon within the Intune web console. A happy little penguin. Well, the penguin doesn't actually really look all that happy, but a penguin all the same. That's right, Linux showed up as a supported platform within Intune. And the Intune support team on Twitter responded to a tweet showing a screenshot with the Linux icon there within the platform menu and stated that our Intune chefs accidentally served this before it was done cooking and they're still making the finishing touches. We're happy to hear you're excited. Stay tuned, it's coming. Well, with the cat well out of the bag, Microsoft shared some details on the upcoming management and compliance check support for Linux. The original publication date for the announcement of the Linux management support was actually November 2021, and they only just updated the statement in line with the Linux icon showing up. And they had previously promised that the Linux capabilities would be available in early 2022, and obviously it is no longer early 2022. But clearly, this is right around the corner because it's showing up in tenants already. Also absolutely hot off the presses here, but Eldon Christensen, the principal group PM manager on the Windows Server development team, responded to an old post on the tech community about the lack of support for 365 applications on Windows Server 2022. And he stated, quote, First off, I would like to thank everyone for the feedback and apologize for the delay in responding to this thread. Your feedback has made a difference and sparked many internal discussions. We have customers running M365 on Windows Server 2016 and 2019 today, and we want to enable staying current and secure, being able to upgrade to Windows Server 2022. As such, we are exploring supporting M365 on Windows Server 2022. On that journey, I would like to encourage our Windows Server Insiders community to begin testing now and please provide feedback to help expedite getting to a comfort level to reach production level support. Getting customer feedback and validation is a critical piece to reaching production support. Again, thank you for your feedback and passion, end quote. So that does not state that it's imminent or it's coming, but they are trying to elicit some feedback from server administrators uh, on the topic. And it certainly seems to be open for discussion and support in the future, which would be a great win for the community because that is something that irked a lot of people and obviously published desktops. They really uh, showed their value uh, when people had to rush to work from home, providing that 
uh, great user density on the servers for those shared published desktops. So it is something that the community is passionate about and will hopefully be something that we get in future with 2022. Now, I keep saying it, but it would also be great if Azure Active Directory join worked on server OS. So hint, hint, maybe community get the wheels turning on that one too. Nathan McNulty shared a tweet this week with a screenshot showing that some have been noticing under Microsoft Authenticator settings and authentication methods and policies that there are some new abilities to do things like show the application name in the push and password notifications and you could set it so you require number matching for push notifications. And there's a little label saying preview so these are obviously maybe just in a preview state right now. But rather timely, the Austin Kevin Beaumont had tweeted this week a tip, reminder to all organizations who implemented MFA that you should tighten up MFA with number matching type functionality to stop phishing kits. Example, enter a number displayed on your screen, on your mobile phone to complete sign-in. Very timely considering it's showing up at least in a preview state for those Microsoft MFA customers. This week, Microsoft have warned Windows devices that support the newest Vector Advanced Encryption Standard, AES VAES, instruction set might be susceptible to data damage. There's no real detail to what exactly happens and what a user experiences with this issue other than data damage. Microsoft says the issue was addressed to prevent further data damage in preview and security releases issued on May 24th and June 14th, respectively. However, these Windows updates also come with a performance hit since AES-based operations might make systems two times slower after installing them on affected Windows Server 2022 and Windows 11 original releases. BleepyComputer.com reports that scenarios impacted by the performance hit might include BitLocker, Transport Layer Security or TLS, specifically load balancers, and disk throughput, especially for enterprise customers. But there is a note that performance will be restored after you install the June 23rd, 2022 preview release or the July 12th, 2022 security release. This next story is referencing or sampling an article from the Financial Times who had an update on the proposed Citrix acquisition stating that Bank of America, Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse will on Thursday hold calls to drum up investor interest in one part of the package, which is a $4.55 billion loan to fund the $16.5 billion leveraged buyout of Citrix. The banks are expected to generate significant losses after agreeing to finance the takeover of Citrix by Vista Equity Partners and Elliott Management. This deal was obviously struck in January before borrowing costs started to surge, and attempts to offload the debt to other investors during the summer were delayed after the banks struggled to generate enthusiasm. And I would just comment on this saying that it's not that surprising. Obviously, the just state of the world has completely changed. Interest rates are rising. So what was in place initially back in January is very different now today in August. It stated the bankers have spent the ensuing months retooling the financing package to make it more appealing to investors 
and are being forced to use their own balance sheet to provide part of the equity check to Vista and Elliott, so a significant hit to the bank. The Financial Times are very strict on their copyright, so I won't go further into this story, I just sampled it, but I suggest that you check out the full article for yourself for more information. At least for me, it's not behind a paywall, and I'll share that with this episode. You'll find it at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 246. Betanews.com reported this week that Google have released Chrome version 105.0.5195.102 for Windows, macOS, and Linux to address a vulnerability tracked as CVE-2022-3075. This security flaw, which relates to data validation in the Mojo runtime libraries, is known to have been exploited in the wild, so users are advised to actively seek out the update rather than waiting for Google to roll it out automatically. And as usual with Google, they are not very forthcoming with deep details on this, so there's not much else to report, but if you're a Chrome user, update the browser. A quick reminder for this next story that Microsoft will be turning off basic authentication for specific protocols in Exchange Online for customers who use them. In a statement, Microsoft have stated that they can see usage is not at a zero yet. And this is the first warning of deprecation going out three years ago. Well, Microsoft are compromising a little bit. They say that if the change impacts a customer, they will be able to use the self-service diagnostic to re-enable basic authentication for any protocols they need once per protocol. So very important, they could do this once. Details on the process were included, and I'll share a link to that with this episode. But essentially, once this diagnostic is run, basic authentication will be re-enabled for those protocols, and the selected protocols will stay enabled for basic authentication only until the end of December. During the first week of the calendar year in 2023, those protocols will be disabled for basic authentication use permanently, and there will be no possibility of using basic authentication after that. So anyone who's still using it, and there are some because it's not at zero yet, you're getting this reprieve. It's going to break. You're going to be able to fix it, but that then starts the clock ticking because you have to get it permanently resolved by the end of December 2022. They go on to say, if you already know you need more time and wish to avoid the disruption with this change, you can run the diagnostic during the month of September, and then when October comes, they will not disable the basics for the protocols that you specify. Microsoft will disable basic for any non-opted out protocols, but you will be able to re-enable them by following the steps that I just mentioned and that are included with this article. If you're unsure, it's probably a good idea to check this month to make sure that you're not going to be impacted. Some administrators had a rough weekend, which is very unfortunate for those in America who are celebrating the long Labor Day weekend. But it was reported by bleepycomputer.com that a bad Microsoft Defender signature update mistakenly detected Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, Discord, and some other Electron apps as Win32 slash Hive.ZY each time the apps opened in Windows. The report suggests that reported detections were appearing each time that someone opened the browser or an Electron app. So it wasn't just like a one-off pop-up on someone's screen that made someone panicked. It was every time they're using those apps. 
Microsoft stated, quote, we have released an update to address this issue and customers using automatic updates from Microsoft Defender do not need to take additional action, end quote. In addition, Microsoft shared that enterprise customers managing their updates should ensure they are using detection build number 1.373.1537.0 R newer. I think it's funny that, hey, you know, good news is if you've got automatic updates, you don't have to worry about anything. The bad news is if you had automatic updates, then this broke for you automatically without warning. You didn't do anything to make this break. So a little bit of a catch 22 there. So as I just stated, last weekend was Labor Day weekend in the United States. And as is usually the case, some news stories landed on Friday just before the long weekend over there, likely in an attempt to bury the stories, including news that Samsung confirmed a data breach affecting customers' personal information. TechCrunch.com reported that Samsung said it discovered the security incident in late July and that an unauthorized third party acquired information from some of Samsung's US systems. The company said it determined customer data was compromised on August 4th. Samsung said social security numbers and credit card numbers were not affected, but some customer information including names, contact, and demographic information, date of birth, and product registration information were taken. Their spokesperson declined to say how many customers were affected or why it took Samsung more than a month to notify customers about the breach, which was, of course, just announced right ahead of the U.S. holiday weekend. And while social security numbers were not reportedly affected in the Samsung U.S. breach, another story was published about the San Francisco 49ers American football team getting hit by ransomware the week before the Super Bowl, so... That was about eight months ago, I believe. If you thought Samsung held on to theirs for a long time to drop the story at an opportune time, how do you like that? Eight months. After the attack, BlackBite offered up 292 megabytes worth of invoices and other business documents on its leak site. The record media reports that the team is offering victims one year of free credit monitoring and identity theft protection services through Experian which now seems like the go-to when these types of breaches happen. I think, was it Equifax who did that? And now it seems to be the done thing. They've also set up a call center for victims and implemented other security protocols in addition to security training for employees. The team did not respond to requests for comment about what other information may have been accessed during the ransomware attack. So Samsung and the 49ers get on the naughty step. I mean, Samsung held on to it for about a month. The 49ers held on to it for much longer. Not cool. A lesson in how not to handle a security breach. LeapyComputer.com carried a very troubling report on a research study from researchers at Semantics Threat Hunting Team, which which found 1,859 applications containing hard-coded AWS credentials, most of them being iOS apps, with about 37 of the apps on Android. Roughly 77% of those applications contained valid AWS access tokens that could be used for direct access to private cloud services. Additionally, 874 applications contained valid AWS tokens that hackers can use for accessing cloud instances containing live service databases that hold millions of records. Rutro. 
just another worrying glimpse that God knows what these applications we're all running on our machines are actually doing. But credit the Semantics Threat Hunting team for highlighting this. The iPhone 14 and 14 Pro were announced this week by Apple iPhones are certainly relevant to enterprise IT from a support standpoint, and also they're often used for peripheral appliances, particularly in healthcare. But I'm not going to go too deep on it because I feel most will have already heard or read about the announcements already if they were interested. Plus, I don't think there was all that much that was enterprise specific in the announcements, in my opinion. Uh, but just a quick run through the iPhone 14 Pro runs on the a16 Bionic chip, which is reported to be the fastest chip on the market right now for smartphones. It has a 48 megapixel camera and some enhanced photo features like more zoom settings, plus more. Uh, the iPhone 14 Pro has an all-day battery life and up to 23 hours of video playback, while the iPhone 13 Pro only had 22 hours of video playback. So, wow, one extra hour, but hey, you know, an hour is actually pretty impressive too, of an increase, to be fair. A big change here is that the iPhone 14 will not support physical SIM cards. So that is one that might affect enterprises depending on how they currently handle maybe those roaming devices in the hospital, for example. I assume they'd be able to switch to an eSIM, but I don't know enough to state that emphatically. iOS 16 announced. iOS 16 was also announced, but didn't seem to have too much to it in my opinion. There are some enhancements in terms of customizations available for the lock screen, some enhancements to individual built-in applications like messages and mail. And like, for example, messages will now allow you to edit or delete a sent text message, which I thought was already announced before. But if you do this, the recipient will still see that a message was edited or deleted, but they won't see the message. And in mail, you'll be able to schedule emails to be sent and set follow-up reminders. Again, not hugely impressive. I'm pretty sure I covered those details on messages and mail before. And it's something that people using other clients have been able to do for some time. But it's going to be new to the native iOS 16 client. So that's something. Before I get to the scripts, tricks and tips for this week, I just wanted to give a shout out to a friend and let people know that I have a friend in Georgia, currently in the United States, who's available for work either in Georgia or remote. He's a great application packager who has experience with SCCM in the past, now MECM, and also Intune or MEM. If you're looking for help, let me know and I can put you in contact. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Thanks to Martin Goat for this first one, who shared that he attended a session presented by Rick Doyen. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, but Rick was talking about using Microsoft Intune as a ransomware distribution mechanism for enterprise exploiting. This was at the Dutch security meetup. I don't know if that was recorded, but I'd really love to see that session because it's very interesting. And it's like, I never really thought about people using Intune for ransomware distribution, but yeah, of course, why wouldn't you? <laughs> Uh, it's the perfect deployment to afford because most organizations are now using it. It's going to be trusted. Fire ahead. So I'd be very interested to hear more details about it. Shout out to Jim Moyle this week. I was tweeting about uh, using Packer and some of my frustrations with 
calling PowerShell inline and he pointed me to Azure Image Builder, which I have used in the past and I think more recently, a few months ago as well. Uh, but Jim shared his series, his YouTube video series on Azure Image Builder, which inspired me to go back and take another look. And I was very impressed because I've been doing a lot of automation around Azure and Windows 365, Azure Virtual Desktop and all that stuff for uh, a couple of years now, I believe. But comparing how I do things with how Jim does things, looking at his scripts on GitHub, he has much more detail than so it was nice to go through his scripts and maybe learn a few things. And you should too. I'll share a link. Al Hazard on Twitter, not real name, generic account. But the Twitter account shared a sexy tip for your red team ops, saying avoid IEX and invoke web request in your PowerShell commands. Instead, host a text record with your payload at one of your unburned domains and just use a powershell.nslookup-q equals txt uh, pointing to the URL and then minus one. Again, someone whose brain works completely different to mine because I never would have thought to do that. So pretty cool. This week I came across Popeye, which is a utility that scans live Kubernetes cluster and reports potential issues with deployed resources and configurations. And yes, it is spelled Popeye like the cartoon sailor. Uh, it's said to sanitize your cluster based on what's deployed and not what's sitting on disk. And by scanning your cluster, it detects misconfigurations and helps you to ensure the best, that best practices are in place, thus preventing future headaches. It aims at reducing the cognitive overload one faces when operating a, a Kubernetes cluster in the wild. Furthermore, if your cluster employs a metric server, it reports potential resources over under allocation and attempts to warn you should your cluster run out of capacity. Popeye is said to be a read-only tool. It does not alter any of your Kubernetes resources in any way. Finally, a short one, and it's kind of for beginners, but if you'd like to try Power Automate for the first time, Microsoft have provided a very simple example of using it to send a notification after completing a basic automated function within the workflow. As always, thank you all so much for listening and thanks for your continued support and I'll catch you next week.